throughout the letter to the Ephesians, and it's a series that I've entitled, I Believe in the Church. Because many people need to ask the question today, why do you still believe in the church? Why do you go to church? Isn't the church full of broken people? Isn't it full of broken promises? Isn't it full of unmet expectations? And I go, we need to reorient ourselves and recalibrate our minds to understanding what did God intend for the church in the world for us? And so we're doing that by looking at the letter from Paul that he wrote to the church in Ephesus. 2,000 years ago, and we are going to continue looking at Ephesus in chapter 3, verse 14 through 21. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 21, hear the Word of God. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breath and the length, and the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Dear Father, Lord, I pray that exactly what I just read would happen here this morning, more than we could ask or think, that we would leave here today going, He is able to do more. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Garrison Keillor, who was an author, humorist, and a radio personality about 40 years ago wrote about a town called Lake Wabigon. Ever heard of it? Lake Wabigon. He says, in Lake Wabigon, all the women are strong, and all the men are handsome, and all the children are above average. In Lake Wabigon, it's always pleasant. Don't you want to move there today? Well, if you've never been there before, don't worry, the place does not exist. Garrison Keillor wrote about it to communicate that it's a place that exists in your heart, that it's a place that exists in your mind, a place where all the children are above average, a place that is always pleasant. And his point was that place does not exist on a map, but that place exists in your mind. We long for a place like that. We long for things to be settled. We long for things to be stable. We long for things in deep down in our soul because life is hard and life is stressful. We all long for that place where we can go where everything just seems copacetic. But here for the Ephesians, the Ephesians, the Ephesian Christians that we just have been reading about and learning about the last few weeks, They're way beyond Lake Wabigon. They've given up on that dream. They've given up on that hope. Because if there's anything we've learned from Paul's letter to the Ephesians is that these are not good times for the Ephesian Christians. 
2,000 years ago, it was not popular to be a Christian. It was not popular to be preaching Christ in the city of Ephesus. These people were on their last leg. They were at the end of their rope. And so the dreams of a place that was always pleasant were far removed from that dream. They had given up on that hope and given up on that dream. And so for Paul here, what Paul is doing, starting in verse 14, when he says, I bow my knee, he is praying for them because they are without hope. The dream of a pleasant place has long passed them by. It's long gone. Their external circumstances cannot improve. That can't be their hope any longer. So you notice here when Paul says, I bow my knee, and he prays before the Father, he's praying for something very specific to happen to the Ephesian Christians. He doesn't pray for them to be taken to Lake Wabigon. He doesn't pray for their external circumstances to change. He doesn't pray that they would stop suffering. He doesn't pray that they would be rescued. He doesn't pray that the Roman authorities would, would, would relent and not be so harsh on them. He prays for nothing external. He does not pray for their external circumstances because Paul understands the Ephesian Christians, and he understands us, that there is something deeper inside all of us that needs to change. That sure, our external circumstances can change, our outward circumstances can change, but if something inside of us doesn't change, then nothing else really matters. Something had to happen inside of them. And what does he pray for? He prays for something bigger. He prays for something internal. Doesn't pray for rescue, healing, removing them from their enemies or to destroy their enemies. He prays for strength in their inner being, which is their heart. And he prays for them to experience what they believe. Don't miss that. He prays for them to experience what they believe. Because if there's ever something we struggle with is not believing in God and knowing about God, it's experiencing the things that we believe. And that's exactly what Paul prays here. He prays for the people that are already Christians, people that are already part of the church, to begin to experience internally what they believe. And he prays for them to experience three things. The first thing that we see is in verse 18, going into 19. What does he pray that they would experience? Verse 18, may they, be, may they have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ. See, the first thing he prays that they experience is that they would comprehend, and in other translations it says grasp. But would they comprehend the love of Christ? And he uses this language, the breadth and the height and the, and the, and the height and the depth of the light of life uh, or the love of Christ to communicate to them that the love of Christ is bigger than you could ever realize. That you could go high, you could go low, you could go deep, you could go wide and never truly be able to comprehend and grasp the love of Christ. But he gives us a little clue here. How can one grasp and comprehend the love of Christ? What does it say in verse 18? He wants them to experience and comprehend the love of Christ, but how? With all the, with all the saints. Who's the saints? 
The saints is just a word for the church, the ones that have been called out, the ones that recognize Jesus Christ, the ones that have been called out with Christ. And what Paul is saying here is that I want you to comprehend with all the saints the love of Christ. This is what he's saying. Do not miss this. This is so important. He is saying that by yourself, you cannot comprehend the love of Christ. If you were to go on a deserted island and never see someone for the rest of your life, you would never be able to truly comprehend and grasp the love of Christ. Why do we need church? Why do I believe in the church? Because what Paul is saying here, it is through the church that I can begin to comprehend and grasp the love of Christ, that I cannot do that by myself. It is looking out at you and saying, you have something to teach me about the love of Christ. It is a younger person in our church looking at a a more seasoned adult in our church and saying, you have something to teach me about the love of Christ, something in your life, something in your experience. That there is a widow here in the church that has something to share with a young married couple about the love of Christ. There's an orphan here this morning that has something that you can teach us about comprehending and understanding the love of Christ. And the list goes on and on and on. I can never comprehend or grasp the love of Christ outside of community. It is in the context of church. That's why we come on Sunday mornings. That's why we do this thing called church. We don't do this just to go through the rhythm. We don't do this to go through the motions. We do this because I can only comprehend the love of Christ together. Rich and poor people, widows and young, different races, different cultures, teaching one another about the love of Christ. This is why the church exists. Without the church, I cannot know Christ and his love in all of its fullness. We need one another to be able to comprehend and wrap our minds around the love of Christ. And then he goes on further. So not only does Paul want us to experience the love of Christ together in context of community, but he also wants us in verse 19 to experience the what? The fullness of God. It says that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. It seems pretty excessive, doesn't it? I wrestled with this verse all week. Why did Paul not say filled with God? That would have been enough, right? I pray that you'd be filled with God. He uses three words that, that, are, that communicate excess or something excessive. He says, I want you to be filled with all the fullness of God. It kind of sounds weird when you think about it. Filled with all fullness. Filled with the fullness. What? Filled with the fullness? No, he says, I want you to be filled with all the fullness. What is Paul trying to say there? That Ephesian Christians, I want you to be filled with all the fullness of God. He's trying to be excessive for a reason. Because he wants you to understand that deep down in every single person's heart, there is a longing to be fulfilled. There's a longing to be satisfied. And we search in a hundred different ways for that meaning and purpose and source of hope and satisfaction and fulfillment. And what Paul is saying here is that you not only can be filled, but you can be filled to the point of fullness where you no longer need anything else. I, I know you know the love of God. I know you know the love of Christ, but I want you to be filled with all the fullness. What's all the fullness of God? What is God? Who is God? 
God is love, so that you can be filled with all the fullness of the love of God. God is peace, so that you can be filled with all the peace of God. God is mercy, God is grace. The list goes on and on. Think about that. Comprehend that for a second. Paul's saying, I want you to be filled in such a way that you can go out in life and say, there's nothing else I need. I am completely filled. I am completely satisfied. You see, the reality this morning is every single person in this room, right? Pastors can say stuff like that. Every single person, but I mean it this time. Every single person in this room was born restless. And some of you here this morning are restless today. You are restless trying to find that thing or that person, trying to find that something that satisfies the longings of your heart. Whether it's your job or your spouse or friends or money or whatever it might be, there is something inside of all of us that is longing to be filled and satisfied. And know what Paul says? Paul says something very audacious. Don't miss this. You can have it. You can have that thing that you've been longing for, that your heart has been longing for since the time you were conceived, but it can only come through God, only through God. And in the person and work of Jesus Christ, can you be filled with all fullness? Believe it. Be overwhelmed by it. Paul says, I want you to be overwhelmed by the love of Christ and the fullness of God. So the first thing he prays to experience, experience the love of Christ in community, experience the fullness of God, be filled with all fullness. And then lastly, verse 20, I want you to experience the ability of God. What does he say? Now to him who is able to do far more. How do you say something like that? I know we all know that God's able to do more, but the only way you can say what Paul said is if you truly are overwhelmed by the first two things I said. Only when we comprehend the bigness of Christ's love, only when we are filled with all the fullness of God, can then we say, now God is able to do more. You see, what is amazing is this. The world says to all of us, prove your ability and prove your strength and power and you will be loved and approved. The world says to every single one of us, including myself, prove that you are able. Prove your ability. Prove your worth. Prove your strength. Prove your power, and you will be loved and approved. That's what the world says to every single one of us in this room. But Jesus comes in and does what? Jesus comes in and he turns that upside down And he says, no, 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 no. I have come to love those that are not able. I have come to love those that can honestly say, I am not able, but he is. That is the gospel. That is the message of Christianity, that we do not have to show that we are able to be loved by God, but it's actually in our inability and recognizing that Christ is able, that God is able. That is how we are 
that is how we are loved. That is how we are approved. Every single person in this room this morning is longed to be approved, longed to be loved. There are men in this room, because I've talked to you in my office, that have never heard their father or mother say, I love you. There are men in this room that I know, because I talk to you weekly, that are longing to be loved. And your problem, your problem, is that you are trying to be loved by proving your worth and your ability. And the gospel this morning frees you from that. Elton John, in a rare interview with Rolling Stone, reflected upon his father. And in this interview, he said, my father would never hold me. My father never looked at me unless he was beating me. Never said, I love you. Never said, I was proud of you. I was afraid of my father. I was walking on eggshells the whole time trying to get his approval. Listen to this. He's been dead for 20 years, and I'm still trying to prove things to him. Ask what he meant. Elton John said, I still do things and say, Dad, you would have loved this. Elton's father died in 97 without ever seeing him play live. His father physically didn't touch him, didn't love him, didn't acknowledge him. My mom would always say, that's just the way it was in those days, and it didn't affect you. And Elton would say, Mom, are you kidding me? It affects me every single day of my life. And the good news this morning is that you are loved not because of your ability, but you are loved by the one that says, I am more than able. See, my hope this morning cannot be in my success or failure. It cannot be in my ability to do more. My hope has to be that there is one out there that is able to do more than I could ever ask for or think of. And when the church understands that, see, the world says true power is show me your strength, show me your ability, show me that you're able. And the gospel says, no, 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 real power and real ability is recognizing there is one far greater than us that says, I am able to do more. And when a church understands that, watch out. That's an exciting place to be. That's an exciting church when they realize, no, there's someone greater than us out there, and his name is God, and he is able to do more. Watch out what could happen here at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church when that happens. That's exciting. That's true power. That's true ability. Embracing and experiencing the ability of God on your behalf. From the time we were born, we have been trying to prove our ability. We've been trying to prove that we are able and trying to win others over with how able we are. I'll close with this. My son just finished his first season of T-ball. It was pretty exciting. And if you are, by the way, if you are OCD or like a lot of structure, then T-ball is not for you. I can just tell you that right now. But every Saturday morning, my son Preston gets ready for T-ball, and he is meticulous. He has his shoes lined up, and he has his high socks, and he has his pants, and he has his, he has his jersey number four, and he is ready to go. He's got his glove, and he's got his hat, and he's got his bag, and he is ready to go. He is ready to prove that he is able 
And you got 11 other kids out there trying to prove that they are able. And if you've never been to a t-ball game, this is kind of how it works. They all line up and then it's like everything falls apart. You have kids running from third base to first base. You have kids running from second base home. You have kids throwing the bat up in the air, playing in the dirt, sprinkling dirt on one another. It's all chaos. But you know what? When I look at my son out there, I don't even think about it. You know why? Because that's my son. That's my boy. He doesn't have to prove his ability to me. I love him in light of that, in spite of that. I love my son because he's my boy. And the good news this morning, listen to this. The good news this morning is that for those that are in Christ, God looks down upon you this morning, sees you in your mess, sees your inability, he sees you fumble, he sees you fall down, but God looks down upon you this morning and says, that's my boy, that's my girl.